In 2008, I graduated from Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary, and um, toward the end of my class selection um, in 2007-2008, I began to take some electives and some things that just interest me, and um, one of the classes that I really enjoyed uh, in that, during that time was a class called Biblical Counseling. I took that class because I was a student pastor at Ellendale Baptist Church, and during that ministry, as I was going to seminary and being trained, but also serving in full-time ministry, I really felt ill-equipped um, in the role of biblical counseling. I had to uh, engage students that were wrestling with suicide and eating disorders and uh, marital problems at home with their families and uh, divorce and all arrays of, of different items. And I just felt really ill-equipped. And um, I remember from some advice that was given to me and really kind of the philosophy of ministry during that time was, well, we basically outsource those issues to professional counselors. And um, at the time, I was a young pastor, and there was something that sat wrong with me there in that philosophy, but I did it because that's just what ministers did. And so there were ministries in the area that were... Um, People were trained in biblical counseling, and they would go, and, and we would refer them to that. But I, as I said, I, I was just kind of, I struggled with it because I felt like that, um, and I believed, and I still believe, that there are issues that need to be dealt with biblically um, in the church, not outside of the church. And this philosophy of outside referral saddened me because I felt like it did not stand upon the authority of God's word in the life of a true believer. And so during my class of biblical counseling, I was really encouraged um, by, by the help of my professor, Dr. Tim Seal, and some of the uh, training that we received, most particularly from one author, a man named Dr. J. Adams. Dr. Adams... Um, began his ministry in the world of biblical counseling about 50 years ago, um, or at least I would say he revived the biblical counseling movement about 50 years ago with numerous books that he wrote. One in particular, um, I really appreciate the title. It was simply called Competent to Counsel. And Competent to Counsel was a manual and really, his main argument was were two two things. Number one, his argument in that book was is that God's word is sufficient to handle the problems of the people in this world. God's word is sufficient. He doesn't discount medical issues that occur in people that need medical attention. He doesn't discount the 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 helpfulness of doctors. But what he strives to uh, focus on is that as human beings created by God, God's word can minister and counsel our hearts and our souls and our minds. And that to outsource that to Christian counselors was neglecting the fact that the church has been redeemed by the blood of Christ 
and has been ordained to minister to the people in this world, both saved and unsaved. And so his first point, as I said, was that God's Word is sufficient, the theology of the sufficiency of Scripture. And secondly, anyone trained in the Scriptures can counsel other people to look to Christ. Now, this was very radical thinking. This was basically the ideology that um, we didn't have to become licensed or certified counselors, that we have been equipped by God's Word to counsel one another in the church. Now, there was obviously some disagreement. Some, Some critics would say, well, not every problem is essentially a biblical problem. And I think that there are obviously examples that we can think of Uh, For example, in in our lives that the Bible doesn't tell us about. It doesn't inform us on problems like how do I fix my leaky toilet? Or um, how do I change the tires on a car? But when we think about problems in our lives, the, the root causes of issues that we face, they can be solved scripturally, biblically. And we have to look to God's Word. And so there, became, there became a divide with J. Adams' ministry where you had on one side, you had Christian counselors, and you on the other side had biblical counselors. And you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, a Christian counselor is a Christian or an identifying Christian who uses the Bible in their counseling, but integrates that and mixes that with philosophical, scientific uh, practices and ideologies. A biblical counselor, on the other hand, focuses to handle problems that are in in a particular way focusing on using God's Word as the solution and the way in which we minister to the human heart. Um, In his book, A Theology of Biblical Counseling, one author, Heath Lambert, makes this statement. He says, counseling is a theological discipline. He says, if you've continued to read beyond the first sentence, you've already completed the most controversial part of his book. Most people do not assume the theological nature of counseling. Most believe that theology is for ministers, what psychology is to counselors, and the two really do not have anything to do with each other. Well, I would, I would disagree with that belief and agree with Heath Lambert's statement that counseling is a theological discipline. And, it, and, and in the foundation of all counseling, we are all practicing theologians because we are all believing something about God, whether God is the solution to our problems or the world in which we worship is the solution to our problems. Both are theological issues. And so theology is the foundation of counseling. And so I want you to understand today um, a, a term because it has to do with uh, the, the, the premise of my passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because biblical counseling is not, it has another name, it's also called nathetic counseling. And nathetic comes, the word nathetic counseling, nathetic comes from the word netheteo, which in the Greek means to admonish. This is why the title of my sermon today is Admonishment in the Church. Admonishment is a theological, biblical word that is used in the Bible. 
And so as Jay Adams began to write and, and teach on nuthetic counseling, what he was talking about was the necessary and biblical admonishment of God's people in the church under the umbrella of the authority and the foundation of the church. Admonishment is a spiritual practice of the Christian life. Paul uses the word nathateo over and over again as a central theme, not just to the book of Corinthians, but to the, the, the churches in Ephesus and Thessalonica and Galatia and Philippi and Rome. He is literally admonishing them as an apostle, admonishing them in their spiritual lives. He is literally writing these letters as a method of counseling. Now, I want us to step back for a moment because when we think of counseling, we think of the formalized, sit down in front of a man or woman that has a certification on their wall and, and we think, oh, well, I go to a counselor when there's a lot of problems in my life and I need solutions. And what we fail to understand in that formalized scientific mode is that we all have problems and we all need counseling. Every one of us. Counseling is a healthy practice of the Christian life or as Paul calls it, admonition. But the world has convinced us as, as it does in many different realms that because we put on a lab coat we are always speaking truth, therefore you should listen to us as we direct you. But the last two years has taught us that may not be true as we thought it was. But instead, the ever, or excuse me, the unchanging and always eternal Word of God can be trusted to be the very thing that admonishes us as a spiritual practice in our Christian life. Look at a couple passages with me. As a, a way of introduction, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. This is the New American Standard. The more I use the ESV, the more I miss the New American Standard <laughs> because of its very literal nature. In the New American Standard, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul writes, We proclaim him, admonishing, or in your ESV perhaps it says, warning. Every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We proclaimed him, Jesus, and while we're proclaiming him, we are admonishing or counseling every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that they may or, or that we may present every man complete in Christ. What Paul is saying there, as he proclaims Christ to the church, as he teaches the Word of God, he is practicing admonishment or admonition by warning people to turn toward Christ's likeness, teaching them the Word of God, which serves as the light to a darkened roadway. It is the path that is uh, illuminated for us by the Word of God that gives us direction, that gives us course correction, that is the admonishment that we all need. So if anything, in my uh, time with you today, I want to convince you 
that counseling is not just for the lunatics in Bolivar, it's for everybody. Every one of us need admonishment. Every one of us need counseling. And as Jay Adams taught us, we can be equipped to counsel one another. Look at Paul's writing in Colossians. He acknowledges that this warning or this admonishment is the very way in which we grow in our sanctification. That with the teaching and with the admonishment of, uh, within the church, we are presented complete in Christ. In other words, that we won't grow spiritually the way that we need to grow spiritually if we are not busy admonishing one another. So therefore, admonishment in the church is not for those rare cases when people or problems arise with people and formal counseling is needed. Admonishment is needed for all of us as we grow in Christ. Look at another passage. Romans 15, verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with knowledge, and able to admonish one another. This is our role. This is our responsibility. To live in such a way as the church, as we've talked through this uh, problem in Corinth with the division and the faction, and understanding that we are uh, uh, belonging to the fellowship of the saints, we are uh, knit together as believers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead of being divided, we're to be united. We are to live in such a way that we are admonishing one another. This is a part of our sanctification. And this is what Paul has set out to do. And the reason I'm spending so much time on this introduction is because in verse 14, uh, excuse me, yeah, verse 14 of chapter 4, Paul summarizes the first four chapters and really the whole book of 1 Corinthians and all of his writings in this word, in this phrase. Listen to this. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. That is the purpose statement for all of Paul's writings. To write these letters in in such a way that he would admonish or counsel the people of God so that they would grow in Christ, that they would fight the sin of their, uh, that within their midst, they would see Christ as as necessary and, and find satisfaction in them and therefore grow in Christ. This is the purpose of counseling or admonishment in the church. And so what I'd like to do following uh, the, the course of this passage is use this passage today as Paul is demonstrating for us his admonishment for the Corinthians as he kind of summarizes the final beginning stage of of warning or admonishment for the Corinthians' division and factions that we've been dealing with now for weeks, Paul summarizes this as a final admonishment before he moves on to another weighty topic. Before I do that, as we begin to look at components of uh, biblical counseling or admonishment, listen to this second quote from Heath Lambert. 
He says, understanding that counseling requires some vision of life is crucial to understanding the theological nature of counseling. The reason is that such a vision of reality is always theological. God defines what it is to be human, and he describes it in his word. God knows what is the solution to our problems, faith in Christ, and reveals him to us in the scriptures. God authorizes a process of transformation and shows us what it looks like in the pages in the Old and the New Testaments. We are who God says we are. What is wrong with us is what God says is wrong with us. There is no solution to our problem and no process of change other than the one God has provided. Therefore, church, we need to understand and adopt as human beings and believers in Jesus a healthy definition of counseling or admonishment We must understand the need for it in our lives and we must be busy getting trained to do it so that we can be faithful to admonish one another as Paul tells us to do. So what I want to give you today is some components of admonishment that we can see in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 starting in verse 6. The first step in admonishing is simply this, addressing sin. If the church is to be holy, it must address sin and not ignore it. This is the theme of every subject that Paul will write to uh, write about in the, the first letter to Corinth. It's a literally a laundry list. It is a to-do list of sinful habits that Paul has to address. The first four chapters has been about the division and the faction and the, and the arrogance and the boastfulness of the human pride of the people of Corinth. And Paul is addressing it. He's not going to let it go. He's not going to ignore it because it's too difficult to talk about or because it will ruin his relationship with the uh, Corinthians. The overarching sin that needs to be addressed with the people in Corinth is not their division and their factions. The overarching problem and sin that Paul brings to the surface in this passage today is pride. Pride and arrogance in man's ability and man's knowledge and wisdom has been the subject of our study for many weeks now. It manifested itself in division. It manifested itself in in factions in the church. But the overarching root of sin that all counseling must focus on is not the tip of the iceberg, it's what's floating underneath the water. And he mentions in multiple places in our passage today that the issue with Corinth is their arrogance and their pride. Look at what he says in verse 6, starting in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn from us or by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another or of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you do not receive? If you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Without us, he goes, already you have all all that you want. Already have you become rich. Without us, you have become kings. 
And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. In verses 6 through 8, Paul begins by really addressing sin in the midst of the Corinthians in a very unique way. He starts off by saying that they are going beyond what the scriptures have written or what has been said. Referring to the Old Testament Scriptures, the things that have been taught to them by Paul. Pointing the, the, the works of the Old Testament to the Messiah Himself and seeing Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of those things. This mystery of the Gospel that Paul had been referring to over and over again in these first four chapters. But in their own sin, Paul discovers that they are arrogant and prideful thinking their own wisdom was better than the wisdom from God. And so therefore, he's calling them out, saying that they've gone beyond what was written in the Bible. They are now applying things outside of the written Word of God as a source of authority and direction and guidance in our life. And boy, this is such a problem and temptation for the Christian church. To go beyond what the Word of God teaches us, thinking that we have to add to it or make it more palatable or make it more culturally acceptable. And here the Corinthians were taking philosophies and ideas from outside the world thinking that, well, this would just make the Bible better. And he's saying this is arrogance. This is pride that's risen up. And it's done such a work in you that it's causing you to be against one another. And in verse 7 and 8, he asks some very important questions that we'll look at in just a second that really identify the sin in the Corinthians. But before we do, jump down to verses 18 and 19 where he mentions the problem with arrogance again. He says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find Find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, the love, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Paul again is identifying the, the root cause and the problem with Corinth. This pride of arrogance. And the word pride literally means to be inflated. That's why the word in verse 6 was puffed up. It's the same word for arrogance in verses 18 and 19. It literally means to be inflated. An inflated self instead of a deflated self. A deflated self is a humble person. An inflated self is not resting upon Christ. It's resting upon our own strength and our own works. And so... You could say that in verse 7 and 8 and 9, Paul gets a little nasty with them. He just gets a little sarcastic about the issues before them. But before he does that, he asks three very important questions in verse 7. First of all, he says, and again, I'm reading from the New American Standard because I I think the New American Standard captures this passage better. Verse 7, "...for who regards you as superior?" That's a literal translation. For who regards you as superior? Number two, what do you have that you did not receive? 
And number three, and if you did receive it, why do you brag or boast as if you did not receive it? All three of those questions reflect human pride. Number one, who regards you as superior? Literally, the Corinthians had such an air about themselves that they thought that they had been, uh, they were superior to all other people. Now, what leads to superiority in the church? Well, for the Corinthians, it was knowledge. Paul will get to that in chapter 12 and in other places in this letter where knowledge puffs us up. It leads us to think that we're better than other people because our heads are full of information. But the truth of the matter is, Paul goes on to tell us that without love, we're like a, a, a clanging cymbal that's just making a bunch of noise. Because oftentimes, knowledge will lead us to think that we are better than other people because we've found something that other people don't understand. But what's Paul's second question? But what do you have that you did not receive? God allowed you to understand these things. You are not entitled to these things. God opened your mind. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. What does he say? The natural man does not understand the things of God. They are foolishness to him. Therefore, what you understand about God, you understand because of the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that's been given to you. It's a gift. Who are you to brag about it? God very... God had to literally open your brain and open your heart to believe in Him and understand these truths by the power of His Spirit. So superiority, entitlement. He goes, what do you have that you did not receive? Oftentimes when we think that what we have is by our own hands, by our own works, we feel entitled to these things. As if we earn them. As if we have some... Uh, 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 you know, blood, sweat, and tears in the game. Therefore, when we believe in such a way as that, we take away our dependence for God. Think about the people of Israel. When they demanded a king to lead them into battle, asking for Saul to be their king, God granted their evil request and allowed Saul to lead them, but in their request, they were literally denying God being the one who would lead them into battle. They were denying their dependence upon God, and instead they wanted an earthly king to lead and rule them. And when God, uh, church, when we uh, come to such a place in our life that we are not completely and totally aware that all that we have, whether it be knowledge, whether it be possessions, whether it be physical life, all of these things is a gift from God. We lose sight and dependence upon God Himself. And third question they ask, he asks, if you did not receive it, why do you brag as if you did not receive it? In other words, he's saying, why are you so... Um, braggadocious or arrogant about the very blessings that God has given you. Remember James chapter 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Paul admonishes the sin of pride with these people because one, they think they were superior. Two, they think they were entitled. And finally, the last question 
they forgot or failed to be thankful. Because when you think that you are superior, and when you think that you are entitled, you will not give praise to God as He deserves. And so this is the pride that they are facing. And Paul is very clear to make that known. And so in verses 9 down to verse 11, Paul begins kind of what I would call a diatribe of sarcasm using ironic language to make very clear what is truthful and in the same way condemning and warning them about their own sinful behavior. First of all, he says in verse 9, I think that God has exhibited us or displayed us as apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Notice the word spectacle in your Bible. The Greek word there is theatron. It's where we get the word theater. In other words, he's saying that, that literally the way in which God allowed the world to treat and abuse the apostles on the theater or the stage of the world to see is a, an example and a truth of how God will display His people in the world in light of the evil and the sin. In other words, what Paul is doing is he is really course-correcting the Corinthians to see how true people of God will be treated. And that's why he gets sarcastic with them in verse 10. He says, well, we are fools, as the apostles, we are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you're wise in Christ. That's how he said it. I know if you're a parent, you've probably talked to your kids that way, right? Oh, you go ahead and tell me how to cook dinner tonight. Just go right ahead. You know what I mean? This, that's, the, that's the attitude Paul's got right now. Oh, well, well you're, we're fools in Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. Oh, we're weak, but you are strong. Oh, we're held in, in, or you're held in honor, but we're in disrepute. To the present hour, he says, we hungered and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor and working with our own hands. When reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endured. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. Go home and study the word refuse in that passage. What is Paul trying to do? Well, he's trying to give us the second component of admonition. Not only do you address sin, but he is trying to lovingly correct them. And he's lovingly correcting them in a very unique way, in a kind of sarcastic, uh, very exaggerated way of addressing the pride in their own life in comparison to the reality of how servants of Christ live in this world. How they're treated. True servants of Christ are not superior in this world. True servants of Christ are not entitled. True servants of Christ are thankful. All three points that go against what uh, the Corinthians were believing about themselves. Matter of fact, if you look at that whole list together, 
in verses uh, 9 through 11, this is what Paul says about Christians, true servants. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak, without honor, hungry and, hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, reviled, laboring hard, persecuted, slandered, scum of the world, refuse of all things. That's how the world will look at us. And with a big, huge, fat exclamation point, Paul is trying to remind them, do away with your pride. This is how the Lord has chosen for you to live. This is how the Lord has called you out of arrogance and called you out of pride and said, listen, while you live on this earth, the world will treat you in this way, but you will be rich in me. You will be rich in Christ. That's why Paul was telling them earlier, a few sermons ago, to boast in Him, to rest in Him. So therefore, the true and loving correction that Paul is giving them is to turn away from their pride and arrogance and to reflect their Lord, Jesus Christ. I mean, let's be honest. What Paul writes in these verses reflecting the true servants for Christ literally reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he was treated. That's how he lived on this earth. And he did so by faithfully coming to carry out redemption and, and, and uh, forgiveness of sin and adoption and, and justification and all the aspects of salvation for us. He came and put on these things willfully taking them upon Himself so that we might be forgiven. So that we might be saved. And so therefore, Paul tells us that admonition, as he said to the Colossians and to the Romans, requires us to be taught with all knowledge. Therefore, we must be informed. When sin is addressed in our life, it is addressed not with just, hey, this is what you're doing wrong, but here is what the Word of God, your authority, your foundation, this is what He says about you. This is he, what He says about your way of living and your way of life. But we must understand, and as Paul makes clear in this passage, that addressing or correcting has to be with the foundation of love. He says this in verse 14 and 15, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to counsel you or admonish you as my children whom I love, my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Church, loving correction involves truth. And loving correction involves gentleness. But loving correction starts with relationships that are united in Jesus Christ. That's how it starts. You have no ground to stand on when you admonish an unbeliever. You're warning them. But they don't listen to you because they don't, uh, you have no spiritual connection to them. That's why you're praying by the sovereignty of God 
that he would so possess their mind and remove the scales from their blindness that their heart might be open to believe the gospel. Because there is no spiritual connection with that person. But when you are saved, when you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, you are so united together with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that it is not only our responsibility to admonish one another, but it is literally the act of love that God has demonstrated for us in saving us from our sin. Literally, we are saved by the loving correction of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we must go forth in lovingly correcting our brothers and sisters because we are united together in Him. So Paul doesn't want to bring about shame for the sin in Corinth. He wants to push them toward spiritual growth. Because he understands what it means to be united with them. He is their father. They are his children. Well, for us, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. United in Christ. Reconciled by Christ. Called to Christ to love one another. Therefore, love fuels our sanctification and our admonishment of one another. And so Paul concludes then that as we lovingly correct people, we are addressing them with knowledge, the foundation of love and gentleness, and we are pushing them toward Christ-likeness. We're not trying to just modify their behavior. We want to look like Christ. We want them to look like Christ because in a unified body, we all look like Christ. And it brings Him glory. So Paul says something interesting. He, he says this throughout his ministry. In verse 16, I urge you then, he says, be imitators of me. That sounds kind of arrogant. Hey guys, just do what I do and you'll be okay. Well, we don't want to just read one verse of Scripture. We want to read it in context. So look at what he says. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Well, what's the foundation of Paul's way of living? What's the... What's the uh, What's worthy to be imitated? He's not saying imitate everything because we know in other passages, Paul says, listen, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do. Paul's not saying imitate me wholesale. He's reflecting then on his work among the Corinthians, the things which represent Christ. He says, imitate me. So in other words, what he's saying is move toward Christ-likeness. Not move toward Paul-likeness, Move toward Christ's likeness. Think about Paul's ministry there. He goes there sacrificially. He endures hardship. He shares the gospel. He lives among them humbly. He starts a church. He continues to disciple them and help them grow in their sanctification. Living holy among them. Imitating Paul in that way is simply imitating what Jesus demonstrated in his earthly ministry. That's what Jesus did in his earth three-year ministry on this earth. He was perfect in every way and without sin. 
living a holy life, discipling these men, leading them, growing them, building them up, admonishing their sin. When Paul, or excuse me, when Peter stepped out of line, Jesus admonished him. When, when other disciples stepped out of line, Peter admonished them. Because this is the process in which God moves us toward Christ's likeness or holiness. So therefore, the final step in admonishment is to urge our brothers and sisters not just to understand their sinful state, not to just instruct them into the scriptures, but to urge them toward repentance toward their, in their sin and faithfulness in moving toward holiness or Christ-likeness. Because in the end, our lives on this earth, whether when Christ returns or we're called home in death, we'll be able to look back as the church and we'll be able to see the people who were willing and faithful and courageous to step in our lives and play such a part in our sanctification that we grew more in Christ's likeness because of them. Now ultimately we know it was Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit doing that, but we will be able to look back, and you can do this now, and see I am more like Christ because of this person and this person. And guess what? The Lord Jesus is glorified because of that. Because He saved them. And He called them to do that. And they were faithful to do it. Therefore, you have grown in holiness because they were faithful to grow in holiness and do what God had commanded them to do faithfully. So Jesus calls His church to faithfully admonish one another. So we're to grow in maturity in Christ. Each one of us are sinful. Each one of us needs to grow. Each one of us, when we're equipped with the Word of God, can admonish or counsel our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so our vision as elders at Redemption is not to tell you, well, you know, I, I think there's a counseling center that I could send this problem to. Let me write down their number and name so that that we can help you. No, our vision is that we would have such an equipped body of believers that you would be able to help them. That I would be able to help them. And that we would help them in such a way that we would not depend upon ideologies of the world or philosophies or psychologies of the world, but we would uh, trust in the theologies and the truth of God's Word to instruct our minds and our hearts because God created us He knows our problems, as Heath Lambert says, and he has the solution. So all this is a giant commercial for Adam's counseling ministry in a way that you can get equipped to serve your church, to be equipped with the Scriptures, to be confident in them that the authority of God's Word can help the people that you love and care for. They can. We just have to be faithful to admonish one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its authority and its power. God, we sit here today as witnesses of that power. We are witnesses of that power because Jesus took away our blindness. Father, he took away our rebellion in our heart and he gave us a new life. He took away the heart of stone and He gave us a heart of flesh. 
And just as he died and rose victoriously from the grave, so we, has, we have as believers died to sin and been raised to newness of life. Forgive us, Father, when we have doubted that your word can do this similar transformative change in the heart of people. That we have so lingered into the world looking for other ways, other modes of help and neglecting your word. God, give us a zeal and a passion trusting that the word of God can save that you are our refuge, that you are our help, that you can bring about change. God, help us to be faithful as leaders of this church. Help us to be faithful to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And Father, I pray that we would be faithful to admonish one another in, in loving kindness and gentleness and faithfulness, trusting in the truth of your word to do a mighty work. And we pray all these things and we would do all those things for Christ's holy name. Amen.